Hi, I'm Michaela McGuirk-Scalabro, and you're listening to City Road. The 2022 Festival of Urbanism has provided us with some fantastic panel discussions on the threats and opportunities facing our cities. This episode shares examples of innovative and future-focused infrastructure projects and systems from Australia and across the world to answer the question, what governance models are needed to transform systems of infrastructure provision and distribution, ensuring equitable access to sustainable transitions? In this panel, we hear from James O'Keefe, Director of Roads to Home Program at the New South Wales Department of Planning and Environment. Professor Tim Bunnell, Director of the Asia Research Institute at the National University of Singapore, and Haruka Miki Imoto, Operations Officer at the World Bank Tokyo Development Learning Centre. We also hear from Dr Aidan Weil from the Department of Urban Studies and Planning at the University of Sheffield. I'll let our Chairperson, Dr Turena Lazaday, Associate Professor at the University of Sydney, start us off. Inspired by William Gibson's famous quote, the future is already here, it's just not very evenly distributed. This expert panel shares examples of innovative and future-focused infrastructure projects and systems from Australia and across the world. So uh, before we hear from our wonderful set of speakers, I have to tell you a bit more about the infrastructure governance incubator. And for those of you who may not be familiar with how this works, the incubator is the flagship funding program of Henry Harland Trust. Henry Harland Trust also sponsors the Festival of Urbanism, which we all, uh, which we all love and participate in. So as a result, um, uh, I um, have this wonderful opportunity of giving an annual report to the audience as part of the festival. And I'm doing this today, I'm just uh, making it clear that I am here on behalf of a wonderful team that I work with. The team comes from three different universities, University of Sydney, Monash University and University of Melbourne. And we also have Planning Institute of Australia, New South Wales and Victoria branches at the, as the official partners of the project. Uh, the project is also um, uh, helped by a wonderful advisory board, including a diversity of infrastructure uh, in, uh, stakeholders from Victoria and New South Wales. The incubator started in September 2020, and so far we have published our research agenda and also the result of the systematic literature review for um, the project, and you can read about them um, uh, by yourself. But today, mostly I will be talking about our uh, work focused on the Western Parkland City, which is the case study at the core of the incubator. Uh, most of the people in the audience will be familiar with the Western Parkland City, but just in case, if there is anyone uh, who's not from New South Wales, this is a massive strategic planning project in a special terms, central to major metropolitan restructuring of the Sydney metropolitan region under the six cities planned, encompassing infrastructure provision across a generational time period catalyzed through the funding of a new Western Sydney airport. It also includes a range of novel governance approaches such as the Western City City Deal and Place Infrastructure Compacts. It's a truly complex project from uh, different perspectives. From country, uh, you know, it uh, it has the largest urban indigenous population, uh, include you know, in, including uh, serious social equity issues and environmental challenges. 
so far, we have conducted uh, 53 interviews, uh, bringing together a diversity of voices from federal, state, local governments, First Nation participants, and uh, other non-government uh, voices. I am very proud of the uh, wide range of uh, stakeholders that we managed to engage with as part of this research. And in the next few slides, you will be hearing the highlights of some of our findings under uh, four different teams. So be ready for a bit of overload of information. <laughs> uh, the next um, area of our, our finding, planning on unceded Aboriginal land. Uh, it's just important to clear that it is not our place to define or delimit Aboriginal futures when talking or thinking about planning in Australian cities, but we aim to elevate the insights our participants, many of them First Nation people, have shared with us. So the very first thing is that there have been positive steps towards supporting Indigenous voices throughout the project, including the award-winning recognized country guidelines, Indigenous-led design uh, projects, and new Indigenous roles within some key governments' authorities to support engagement efforts. Such commitments are starkly contrasted with the disrespectful Bradfield name. While there is growing organizational support, participants have also expressed frustration with frequent under-resourcing for important and complex engagement and relationship building work. Uh, while the importance of government uh, listening was emphasized and many participants expressed desire to build toward empowering Aboriginal voices in meaningful positions of decision-making, there were instances of government reluctance to even support advisory roles for First Nation committees. And finally, land ownership is one critical way to facilitate building Aboriginal power and sovereignty in infrastructure, planning and delivery. Key material actions that the state government could make are to commit attention and resources to advancing the high number of Indigenous land claims currently occurring. and applying a special exemption to biodiversity offset obligations. The second area of our finding is around governance integration. For what is uh, widely acknowledged to be an existing highly siloed and fractured planning context in New South Wales, the Western Sydney City Deal is generally seen to be substantial progress towards improving practice of multi-scale government integration. As the project has evolved, practice of integration have been improved through new forums, committees, and network for intergovernment collaboration and continuing practices of staff secondment to promote knowledge sharing and relationship building. However, a range of important shortfalls are noted. Most of them are around funding because it's been noted that funding is mostly about short-term project-based commitments. Uh, it's likely it's uh, inadequate for their reality of strong place ambitions. And many participants have also noted the need to encompass broader systematic attention to transforming New South Wales' existing system of infrastructure governance. The next area uh, of our learnings are about the capacity to address societal end goals, um, such as climate crisis and social economic inequities. Uh, many of our participants have shared that the job focus has overly dominated governance priorities at the expense of attention to other important forms, forms of inequity, including affordable housing, public health, and social services. Um, many participants have also expressed that um, 
a lot of important decisions are being made without a rigorous visioning board being completed, and this includes meaningful in, uh, community consultation. Uh, and uh, finally, uh, there are serious environmental concerns being raised about a massive greenfield uh, development in a very invul uh, vulnerable environment in terms of water issues and heat wave issues that we are quite familiar about in the Western Sydney. And finally, the uh, last uh, line of our learnings are about the importance of accountability and transparency. It's been noted that embedding independent organizations and roles into the governance system has a threatened accountability, but uh, many participants have raised multi-scalar accountability issues uh, across the planning system and especially the lack of clarity around roles and responsibilities with the complex governance uh, around Western Parkland City. It's been noted that local governments are usually better at social legitimacy, but non-government voices haven't been so far included in a meaningful way in the governance of the project. And last but not least, major political decisions have been uh, disconnected from long-term strategy or accountability obligations, such as major land rezoning occurring before value capture mechanisms were in place and our capacities to promote infrastructure spending decisions from pork barreling have been questions. Otherwise, I know that everyone is very much eager to hear from our actually wonderful line of speakers. Uh, James O'Keefe from Department of Planning. James, uh, the floor is yours. Please go on. Thanks, Tori. And yeah, it's fantastic to be invited. And I yeah, thank the university for inviting the Department of Planning to present on the uh, Roads to Home program. First of all, I just want to pay my uh, acknowledge country and uh, acknowledge the, the Darug people on the lands that I meet here today. I acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands that you're meeting on, and I acknowledge any uh, Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander colleagues on this call today, and I pay my respects to elders past and present. So the, the Roads to Home program, uh, it's a road reserve and uh, infrastructure program, and we're focused on the 61 discrete Aboriginal communities across the state of New South Wales. Uh, these are former missions and reserves, and we work with community and we walk with them to, to provide solutions to improve economic and social and health outcomes. Uh, the main focus at this point in time is to improve access, uh, normal access that you have in your urban areas, such as your household waste collection, uh, postal delivery, uh, if there's an emergency, being able to identify what address uh, that, that emergency trucks need to go to and any community transport, such as your bus, buses and connection into towns. At this point in time, a lot of these uh, regional, uh, discrete Aboriginal communities, they don't have addresses, they're on one big lot. Uh, you may have up to 30 or 40 houses on these lots and they don't have individual addresses. And it's also to improve the health, well-being, and social outcomes for the community and to provide uh, some, uh, some training and employment opportunities. And the focus of this, of, of this program is through subdivision, uh, dedicating the, the, road, uh, the road infrastructure and the assets to the local councils. So the Roads to Home team work with the community and the local council to work through the planning and subdivision process, submitting a DA and then the the intent of the program is to then for that local council to take on the asset and provide that ongoing maintenance of that of the road infrastructure. 
through the subdivision process, there's also economic opportunities for the communities. They've identified different uh, industries on, on their blocks of land and they can make it really improve that social and economic uh, well-being. So when we talk about the road reserve at this point in time, uh, it's stormwater and uh, drainage. Uh, curb and guttering, which they just don't have at this point in time. So there's a lot of surface water that stays stagnant on there that causes, you know, mosquitoes uh, and there's a, just health issues there. There's no street lighting. So there's a safety aspect of that. Uh, if you're walking along the street, there's no footpaths. So uh, we're, we're going into these communities and working and in installing footpaths and then upgrading the actual road surface. At this point in time, some of the, some of the, uh, the DACs are just uh, just dirt roads or they have significant potholes in them and they're just not suitable for, for travel in vehicles. Uh, and there's a lot of wear and tear on the vehicles as well. And also looking at any uh, telecommunication upgrades, uh, installation of MBN and internet, uh, just giving them a connectivity into, into that area. Uh, this is an example of one of our discrete Aboriginal communities. It's called the Wali uh, out near Collar Enabri. And as you can see, very remote, uh, and the, there's, there's dirt roads. Uh, this is on one large lot, so they're not subdivided. There's no individual houses house, uh, on, a, on a land title. So it causes issues. You can't get internet uh, through the telecommunication providers. They don't have ma mailing, mailing addresses. It goes to the, the local post office in town and it just creates, it creates issues. And the part of this program is to ensure that we what people have in town is what the uh, the residents out at these Aboriginal communities uh, have as well. So how the Roads to Home program works is it's a capital uh, grants program. Uh, we work with the local Aboriginal Land Council. Uh, they set up a, a, a specific Roads to Home bank account and through a funding deed, an executed funding deed between the Department of Planning and Environment and the local Aboriginal Land Council, uh, we fund we provide funding into that account and they utilise that to engage, engage their consultants and contractors and civil work constructions to, to implement the works. Uh, there's three stage grant process. So the scoping to development application stage, uh, a lot of your planning and assessments, uh, your post-development application approvals, then your operation and maintenance. And we provide that up to 10 years. If they don't, if they don't not successful in dedicating those assets to the local council, we provide that ongoing maintenance to the local Aboriginal land council to upgrade those assets. So with the planning stage, there's a lot of community consultation. Uh, we, 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 we term it, we're walking with the community. We're not there to tell the community what to do. Uh, we provide them options. So a lot of our work is stakeholder engagement, community, we hold community events. Uh, and it's really through that planning assessment phase uh, that we, we get the, the results and understand what the community want. Uh, we hold workshops uh, to provide, we also, the program provides funding for what's called a community liaison officer. It's a individual in the community that is employed through the program and to ensure that that communication piece around in the community is understood and they're aware of the program. Some of the options that get presented uh, to the, this is some of the options. So as you can see, there's one big lot out here. Uh, we can, option one, there's no subdivision. We just upgrade the road, the road infrastructure itself. Option two is where we work with the community and subdivide each individual house, the house block. And then the third option is we, we upgrade the assets, subdivide the land, and then also provide opportunities for additional lots. And that, that 
provides opportunities for the local Aboriginal land councils to seek funding to uh, to build houses on or uh, secure funding for home ownership. Uh, and that there's a rent to buy program that's not part of this program, but there's opportunities. It provides opportunities for the Aboriginal communities to vote if they want to on, on home ownership. A big part of the program is uh, training and employment. So we, we work with RTOs and TAFEs to provide that training and to run through the courses and identify that and have our community members work on these projects. And it just builds pride, uh, pride in the community. They love wearing their, you know, their, their high, high vests, uh, high vision vests uh, with logos on it. And they, they see a real sense of pride and they get tickets and licenses to drive heavy equipment. And that's, that's, a, that's a group up at Bower that went through and uh, went through the TAFE program. They've got plant tickets, they can drive excavators and it provides opportunities for further employment once this program goes through the community. We establish on-site uh, facilities. So the community members have a specific area where they come together and get debriefed and understand what their requirements are of each day. Uh, important part of this is having a cultural uh, cultural advisors on on our on these projects. Uh, the significant Aboriginal artifacts and uh, burial grounds of the like, and we engage a cultural uh, liaison officer uh, when we complete the works. As you can see, this program we're outside of the fence line, so we don't go inside the the properties themselves. So basically, we work outside of the fence lines here. And a big part of this program is we at the completion of the works, we celebrate and come together. We invite uh, our ministers and local members and the community uh, to celebrate the fact that they've gone through this process and understand uh, what, what the uh, what the benefits are of the community. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to acknowledge the, the, the significant effort of the Roads to Home team, the, the current Roads to Home team and the Roads to Home team that's uh, come before us. Uh, it's a, a real privilege to make a difference in Aboriginal communities and I thank everyone's time for, for listening. Thank you, James. Uh, wonderful right on time. It's so great to hear from what has been described by many as the best practice example of um, uh, Indigenous-led infrastructure project across Australia. And uh, with that, um, our next speaker is uh, Professor Tim Bonnell. Tim, the floor is yours. Please start. Okay, uh, thank you. Hi, everyone. So um, how have people related to large-scale infrastructural projects in the past? And what do those experiences tell us about future possibilities? My recent work addressing such questions has been concerned with political visions through which futures have been represented and how ordinary people have related to them. Uh, and the main contextual focus of that interest is the urban region around Malaysia's national capital, Kuala Lumpur, or, or KL for short. Greater KL has seen massive infrastructure investment over the past three decades, including as part of a long-term national vision of the future, the so-called Vision 2020. In the early 1990s, Vision 2020 was launched by the Prime Minister at that time as the way forward for Malaysia to become a fully developed country by that year. That transition period, of course, is now over, but rather than consign it to Malaysian history, I think that it can provide, provide us with insights into relations between um, investment in large-scale infrastructure, the political promises which underlay those investments, and how associated changes relate to the lives of citizens. So let's go very briefly uh, back to the future 
um, to KL in the 1990s, when representations of a futuristic 2020 were used to justify development of a high-tech zone known as the Multimedia Super Corridor, or MSC. My own research back then examined how this infrastructural investment ran against the planning emphasis of preceding decades, which had been to spread development to other parts of the country. This revived focus on KL justified in terms of making Malaysia more internationally connected and investable. And I became concerned with some of the uneven consequences of that recentered national development, evictions, displacement of particular groups of people to make way for the promise of a fully developed national future. Such dynamics have resonances for other places today, perhaps even in parts of Australia. Much of the land acquired for the development of the new airport had been home to Orang Asli, Peninsula Malaysia's Aboriginal people, as had parts of what, what became the intelligent city of Cyberjaya. So they were among the groups whose lives and livelihoods suffered in the name of a supposedly greater good in this region in the 1990s. But fast forwarding now to more recent years, when we approached 2020, I became interested not only in people who had been directly affected by historical material infrastructure developments, but more broadly in how ordinary Malaysians related to Vision 2020. So I've tapped retrofuturist memories. Um, I've excavated how the uh, everyday pervasiveness of Vision 2020 in national parades, school drawing competitions, inflected people's lives and expectations. And I've considered how certain people sought to steer the official vision, whether through electoral opposition, activist critique, or artistic interventions. I could talk for much more than seven minutes about any one of those things, but in very brief summary, many Malaysians saw mega urban development projects as national infrastructural necessity, and even as objects of national pride. The likes of Cyberjaya and the MSC eventually came to garner criticism, but initially they were largely accepted as national infrastructure. A key reason why so many Malaysians bought into these projects was because the wider Vision 2020 aligned with their own developmental aspirations. The official vision document encompassed lots of dimensions of national development, from ethnic inclusivity to ecological sensitivity, something for everyone. Yet national transition ultimately became reduced to GDP growth figures, which could be imaginatively charted as rising towards 2020. This had particular appeal for the population of a developing country convinced of the need for developmental catch-up or leapfrogging. But over time, critics of techno-economic growth centrism recuperated other dimensions from the original policy document, including sustainability goals. And some made use of new infrastructure to pursue alternative political possibilities, including journalists making use of government promises to high-tech investors that there would be no internet censorship to develop online media that was critical of the government itself. These were important developments in their own right in Malaysia. They also, I think, have certain resonances in other times and places in at least three ways. First is the need, I think, for caution in engaging notions of infrastructural necessity. Even to call something infrastructure seems to apply, imply that it is somehow foundationally important, necessary. That can be a good thing if it really is, but this power of persuasion can also be abused. 
I would say that this is especially the case when capital intensive new infrastructure is bound up with futuristic technologies. The allure of what was cast in 1990s Malaysia as intelligent infrastructure lives on in many places today in rhetorical invocation of smartness, smart cities, smart infrastructure, often accompanied with eco or green labels. Second, while the growing emphasis on green or sustainable infrastructure is of course to be welcomed, I, like many others, do also wonder about the extent to which infrastructure developments couched in such terms are still primarily oriented to economic growth and not just in developing or middle-income countries like Malaysia. It is easy to dismiss top-down eco-infrastructural developments as involving greenwashing, but to what extent do their supposedly green credentials allow attentive citizen groups or demanding consumers to hold the proponents of such projects to their promises? My third and final point has to do with the ways in which ordinary people can be more than either passive consumers or opponents of expert visions of the future. I'm drawn to the notion of prosumers, the possibility of people relating to and reconstituting future imaginaries in their own terms, starting from their own lives, needs and priorities in actually existing places, actually in some ways aligned with what James uh, presented earlier. Finally, for that to be done without parochialism, I think we all need to be open to experiences elsewhere and not just those that are perceived to be more developmentally advanced, but from a diverse range of places and times and taking seriously their historical experiences of infrastructural futures. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Tim, for a thought-provoking presentation. Uh, it was great. And uh, without further uh, uh, delay, um, I'm excited to invite um, Haruka Miki Imoto. The floor is yours if you're ready. So uh, once again, my name is Haruka. Uh, I am operations officer at the World Bank. I'm working for uh, INTDLC, which is the unit uh, in the global program uh, of the World Bank. Um, so today, I was very excited when I got this uh, you know, opportunity to speak to you. Uh, I am sure most of you are you know, calling in from, from Australia. And I, I feel like there's so many we can learn and also share from World Bank, but also from Tokyo. So um, I know uh, the time of this is very short. So let me make this very quick so we will leave enough time to, for the conversation. Uh, two objectives from my side. Um, there are all these global priority, priorities which has been already you know, discussed by the panels as well as also Toran, uh, such as uh, you know, sustainability, inclusiveness, competitiveness. So how TDOC our program fits in? And then I would like to actually zoom into the case of Fukuoka. It's one of the city uh, which is actually growing, but it is also very well known as a compact city to see what we can do to make city more green, resilient and inclusive for all. So um, TDLC, Tokyo Developing Learning Center of the Global Unit, uh, it's, uh, we do different type of events and also activities, mainly to basically boost World Bank finance lending and analytic work uh, uh, and across the world. Uh, World Bank, as you might know, uh, we operate uh, throughout the region. So it's not only uh, in the East Asia and Pacific, but we do have a lot of reach to South Asia. Uh, Eastern Europe and Central Asia, Africa, Latin America, and Caribbean, uh, and I don't think I've forgotten any other region. 
Right. So a few things we do is we basically uh, bring some of the city mayors and also policy uh, uh, you know, makers to, to Japan to do some learning tour or technical deep dives. We also provide some technical assistance in partnership with the city partners. Uh, and we're going to focus on Fukuoka, who is our city partner, uh, you know, city. Um, and you know, today we're going to also uh, leverage a lot on what we discussed over the event uh, on transit-oriented development and also the landscape or urban scapes. So uh, zooming out a little bit, uh, sustainable development priorities are something we are all aiming as the institution. Uh, as you might know, World Bank does have a twin goal, which is one is to reduce the extreme poverty and uh, another second one is the share of prosperity. And even if we go in you know, a little bit down uh, in recent uh, years, uh, our priorities are based on what's happening in the world, uh, both in short and longer term. And I'm not going to mention a lot on the food security, for instance, but we do have a lot of focus on climate change, uh, both mitigation adaptation and urban resilience and disaster risk management. So in case you're interested, uh, you can also take a look at the World Bank Climate Action Plan. Uh, which is actually already outdated since it's, it's launched in 2021, but I think we have a few more years to cover. Uh, finally, the institution also very focused on the green, resilient, and inclusive development, which we call as GRID. So in case you're interested, you can also take a look on those. So based on that priorities, decarbonization is something we really need to work uh, in motor level. And, and I think that's where the global unit or the global depart department have the numbers of lending and, and analytics to kind of you know, help the client countries, which range from lower income to you know, middle income uh, to sometimes you know, higher income uh, countries. Um, when we do it, uh, we have a few uh, ways to you know, decarbonize or so we'll go toward zero carbon. Um, so first is better land use planning and regulations. Uh, we can also do better job on energy system and transport system, urban water, uh, supplies and wastewater, which I guess uh, that, that you know, the former panel have also have mentioned. Uh, we also need to integrate a solid waste management uh, with circular economy approach, uh, more energy efficient green building, of course. And finally, all actions at the national city, neighborhood and community level. And I'm, I'm glad to see that, you know, that, that uh, in the presentation earlier. So uh, in the next few minutes, let me just give a snapshot of Fukuoka. Uh, Fukuoka, in case you're interested, um, is that um, they are one of the uh, largest Japanese cities uh, sitting uh, closer in the Southern Island. Uh, I chose this case because maybe it could be interesting as they are one of the only cities in Japan which have a growing population, which can be very similar uh, to maybe that the situation in Sydney, for instance. Um, so uh, one thing interesting Fukuoka is it's a, its compactness. Um, their port, uh, international airport, uh, also two city centers, all you know crowded in 2.5 kilometer radius of the city. Uh, they do it because you know there is the ge geographical reason, but also it's very historical. Um, and I'm just giving you all the numbers. Uh, I'm hoping maybe we can share that uh, that information later. You know, when we say the urban planning, it sounds very top down, but it is it has been very incremental. Um, I think there has been a lot of notion of national planning uh, on, on, on going toward compact, uh, avoid sprawl. Uh, but of course, it was also the local government who was really you know constantly trying to come to make that density. With the compactness of uh, the city is right now known as very vibrant, competitive 
active city with the biggest population growth, uh, despite the, you know, the aging population throughout the nation. Uh, surprisingly, they are gaining population, which is about 4.9% a year. That's very surprising compared to the national average. Uh, why and what is something that attract this population growth is maybe on one side, it's the, you know, the vibrancy. Uh, there has been Japan across uh, across the country. There has been renewal of different buildings. Uh, so you know, region urban regeneration is the trend across Japan, but especially in, in the city center. Um, and they do it often by deregulating the you know the the city center, but also giving some bonus when you know when when they try to you know preserve some nature. So they're trying to do both regeneration, but also you know uh, preserving this open space for all. In the, even in this dense uh, you know city where there are very good bus uh, and also uh, subway uh, connectivity along with train uh, trains, they do have this missing population who still need to you know use cars uh, as that's the major transport choice in the white city and that part is you know colored in orange. And in many cases, this population uh, maybe have some more multiple, you know, issues or challenges such as aging, uh, and and maybe uh, you know they are not they didn't have a chance to to live closer to the city center. So this is where you know city really needs to come in. Um, you know, they are doing different model, but one thing Fukuoka is really trying hard is the partnership. So they are, you know, crowding collective transformation between private sector, uh, public sector, academia, citizen partnership. And I'm giving you one example, which is, you know, they are trying to see how the city citizen can really thrive until the age of 100 across the city. And this is the partnership. Okay, so time takeaway, uh, urban planning, uh, you know, public transport are critical parts to make city uh, more inclusive and also, you know, provide more equity for all. Uh, but transformation is combination series of action. It's not only one planning, but it's a series. It continued. A sustainable city attracts talent and talent triggers innovation that brings more revenues. And finally, sustainable transportation is co-creative process and local government can catalyze the partnership rather than just playing only one player. So with that, I think we can wrap up. Thank you so much. Over to you, Turan. Thank you very much, Haruka. It was great to hear uh, the story of what's happening in one of Japan's regional cities. And our final speaker, uh, Dr. Aiden Weil. Dr. Um, Aiden, if you are uh, there, we are eager to hear from you. Hello, and uh, thank you for the invitation. I'm uh, Aidan Wild from the University of Sheffield in the UK. I guess I'm here because I work on um, future infrastructures as part of a team in the University of Sheffield and thinking about um, what infrastructure of the futures might look like and what's unfolding around us, particularly in terms of technological changes and um, around AI, um, robotics and automation, and what that means for infrastructure. I was going to talk more about the, um, the empirical dimensions of this work. And we've been working in a range of contexts around the world, um, including Australia, North America, uh, Africa, and so on. And, and looking at how um, governance operates with regard to emerging infrastructure possibilities. Um, I'm not going to talk much about some of that detail. I got carried away, I guess, in terms of thinking about the language of the session and to where it takes us. Um, and for me, there are two starting points there. 
Um, first of all, I guess when we, we think about governance, I, I'm really interested in this relationship between innovation, governance, sustainable transitions in the future. Um, and I guess when we think about governance innovation um, and how that might, we think about how that might shape infrastructures that we already know about. Um, one of the questions I wanted to raise in this session is, is how do we think about innovation in infrastructure and it, when the possibilities are to take us somewhere different and where the innovation is in, in the infrastructure itself rather than um, simply being about um, governance and, and how we manage um, things in the present, which are clearly enormously important. Um, but one of the principles of the research we've been doing is to get us to think about what's unfolding around us. Um, and it might unfold faster than we think and take us by surprise in all kinds of ways. So how do we think about those relationships around the governance of future infrastructure and sustainability transitions? I suppose the second dimension for me is, is I'm increasingly worried about infrastructure futures um, in terms of the societal implications and in terms of um, how we think about uh, responses to, to climate change and the nature of sustainable sustainability transitions. Um, and I've got the, up on this slide around this first slide around infrastructure and what are called enclavisms and sustainability transitions. Um, and the tendency for me towards um, potentially increased divisions in terms of access to existing and new infrastructure. And um, we've heard a lot, we've heard today about uh, governance interventions to try um, and work towards a more equitable, a fairer future. Um, I worry that as um, climate change unfolds, um, other issues such as aging population, um, as carbon prices increase, the focus um, of sustainability transition shifts towards increasingly towards adaptation uh, and a sort of desperate move by societies around the world and particularly affluent societies to protect their existing ways of life uh, and, um, and lifestyles. I think in that context, technologies of transition, which um, offer a way of maintaining existing forms of life and in, literally in some cases, um, forms of life support become increasingly important. So I could have talked today about um, technologies for allowing the reproduction of life in terms of climate, such as air conditioning or controlled environments or weather modification, which I think are implicated or, or bound up with issues of automation. Um, but we might um, extend that to, to think about other forms of infrastructure that help uh, support um, life um, in, in, in all kinds of ways, um, particularly for those who, um, including for those who might um, have forms of precarious existence. And we can think about that in terms of population uh, aging. So in the, those sets of relationships, um, the tendency for me is that unless there's some form of proactive government or governmental intervention, the more affluent will be better placed to invest in the life support and life enabling infrastructures um, that help people to survive or to maintain lifestyles in an increasingly sort of turbulent and challenging world. And that might be increased securitized protection of infrastructure enabled enclaves as well. And my first slide is blank um, because I couldn't really find a decent image of what that sort of future might look like um, 
for cities and beyond cities, uh, a much more protection-based um, framework for thinking about uh, urban life, perhaps. So the thing that um, my research is concerned with, I'm not going to tell you, I haven't got time to talk uh, in, detail, in detail about this, uh, are the many are the different forms in which robotics and automation is getting into urban infrastructure um, and holds a prospect for thinking about infrastructures um, in different ways. Uh, we can think about uh, autonomous vehicles and the automated systems in which they'll be uh, embedded. We think about drones, flying vehicles, robotic support in the home, uh, automated energy systems. And I think there's a lot in there that might support sustainability transitions. Uh, and also individual enablement. There's um, uh, a lot of potential in there to do to do good things um, in terms of um, making use of these technological possibilities. But there's also lots of concerns about the, the reworking of infrastructure around technolog technological logics connected to robotics and automation, and whether that's uh, in terms of increased scope of social control differential access to relatively expensive new technologies, uh, given that tech firms will seek out the more affluent markets. And of course, a bigger picture for me of segregation on the basis of access to infrastructures and what infrastructures enable. Um, and our research program at the moment is very much about trying to open up the public debate. The argument is, as Wu et al and others have argued, um, robotics is coming to a city near you um, if it's not already there or it's not already in, in visions and in imaginaries. Quite what that future means still has to be worked out. One of the things I think that's hugely lacking around that, that whole set of interest in robotics and automation is a notion of where the public fit in, the public debate. Um, and Tim mentioned people, a people discussion. Um, and I'll just end on the, the final point that the future might be, um, uh, to, to modify William Gibson's point, um, the future I, I don't think is all around us yet in terms of um, unfolding infrastructure technologies, but it might not be very long before it is. Um, and um, I just wanted to start to, to, to get us to think about how do we embed or think about um, future infrastructure technologies in the research that we do on this area. Oh, thank you, Aiden. Uh, what a wonderful uh, way to wrap up um, the four talks. That that's uh, definitely uh, a thought-provoking um, uh, point. Uh, with that, we don't have a lot of time left, but I have one um, question uh, that I like to throw at the entire panel, and some of you may have already touched upon this a bit in your talk. But um, I'm basically wondering what is the biggest, the biggest, so one, the uh, biggest hope and fear that you have for future infrastructure, obviously informed by the work that you have been doing so far. So what's that one biggest hope and fear? Aiden, you unmuted yourself. Would you like to talk? Yes, go. If, if nobody else is going to talk, I'll, I'll talk. I think it's the thing I talked about um, that um, I, I think infrastructure is um, a, a potentially a, a, a significant tool of social segregation rather than bringing people together, social spatial. And I think access to infrastructures that enable us to, to contend with not least climate change are going to be increasingly important um, for the millions of people around the world who, who will struggle to um, pay for um, or to have that infrastructure provided. 
um, life could look pretty grim. So that, that, that is my biggest fear. I think there's a real issue about how we grasp the enormity of the challenge uh, and the role. And the danger is the affluent will pay for the infrastructures and, and it will be securitized. Uh, the security will be a big part of that protectionism. Uh, and that really worries me. I, I, I think it's a scary world, but um, I'm feeling quite apocalyptic, but uh, perhaps not. Um, but, uh, but I um, uh, unfortunately I don't think that you are alone because I saw quite a bit of nodding happening with other panel members as well. Uh, Tim, uh, would you like to jump in? No, largely what I think actually echoes what what Aidan said, and he said it better than I, I probably will. But uh, you know, I guess to to partly um, build from that in relation to the some of the comparative experiences I had, comparative over. Uh, across space geographically, but also comparison uh, across time longitudinally. You know, my big fear is that we're kind of locked into cycles of actually very, very similar cookie cutter replication of things that somehow have failed in the past, but uh, seem to get resurrected in different political cycles. Um, so that's my that's my biggest fear is that we uh, end up seeing similar mistakes being made, perhaps with different labels and different terminologies and I guess the obverse of that would be to be more hopeful that people are increasingly open to to treat um, a wider range of different pathways possibilities in the present as uh, uh, as models for emulation or, or, or replication. And yeah. building on that, you know, um, yeah. hopes and thinking about the future positive possibilities. James, if I um, uh, may bring you to this conversation, what government principles can wider infrastructure planning projects um, led by First Nation? Yeah, that's a really good point. The, so, yeah, I guess my, my hope for this program is and what we're seeing with some really good outcomes is where we're here, we're listening to the voices of that community uh, and every community is different. So you, you know, you might, you might go into one community and use a strategy, but then if you go to another one and use the same strategy, it may not be what that community wants and what those members are used to. So yeah, just be like for government to be respectful of Aboriginal views and understanding what they need and what they want. And then yeah, building it around them other than, you know, other than, building it and then telling them to, to you know, for people where, where they should go and where they want to go. Uh, and then my biggest fear is uh, it's not, not securing funding uh, for, for, for continuous work in these communities and ongoing maintenance of the assets. So it's, it's all good and well building these great assets. But if we, if the communities, you know, are not, don't have the capability to maintain an ongoing maintenance, then uh, we, yeah, we, we're not doing our jobs well. So that's more our biggest fear for Roads to Home. Yeah, unfortunately, the funding challenges is something <laughs> yeah. that haunts all of us. Yeah, um, and Haruka, you you mentioned about you know the role of um, government in building a partnership with um, communities. Um, so how do you link that to your biggest fear and hope for the future infrastructure? Yeah, sure. So uh, one thing I see the partnerships critical is there as much as much you can do as the as the local government or even as a national government uh, right now. Uh, but they would still serve their jobs, you know. But they would prioritize where they can invest, and they would probably you know need some support. Like they need to actually open up what the public means. So right now in Japan, you know, when we say public or Kokyo, 
uh, this is actually not done only by the local government, but there has been a lot of co-creation happening at the local level. Um, so I think that's the biggest hope. Uh, this is the example. This is actually happening in the transport sector, but also the healthcare and other uh, sector where you actually can mobilize the community. Uh, so I think that's the hope. And I guess uh, for the fear, I would like to actually echo James. ONM operation and maintenance is something you know. It's a continued, um, I guess, bottleneck and also opportunity. Either it's the OECD country or you know our client uh, countries as well. So I guess that's a continued opportunity in fear. Yeah, the issue of funding. Okay, but it's good that we can you know talk about the power of community and the fact that you guys see basically your biggest hope in uh, you know the link and the partnership with the community. So on that positive note, and bearing in mind that you know future is still within our hands, and as Aiden mentioned, there is a lot more research that needs to be done on that front. I like to thank you guys on our panel. You have been fantastic. You know, basically the four different perspectives that you have offered, I'm sure that have left um, us uh, with, um, you know, a lot of um, ideas to pursue in future. Thanks for listening to this podcast series from the Festival of Urbanism. Make sure you check out all the panel discussions at cityroadpod.org. See you next time.